Hey, everyone. Welcome to Just To Be Fair, the podcast where neurodivergence is discussed freely, openly, and respectfully. Today's guest is Dr. Elliot Spieth, lecturer at the University of Glasgow. He teaches inclusive academic practice with an emphasis on disability and neurodiversity. In October 2022, Elliot was championed for his work, his ideas, and his uncanny ability to explain what inclusivity truly means, and was chosen as the number one most influential disabled person in the UK within the category of education. Since I've never had a neurodivergent teacher, as I can recall at least, I'd like to know if in your teaching you infuse your way of being neurodivergent, does that impact the way you, you teach or do you use your experiences in it? It's funny because um, until you asked that question, it's not something I think I've actually thought about a lot because I spend a lot of time thinking about how we can encourage learners who are neurodivergent. And I guess I think about the fact that that's informed by my knowledge of being neurodivergent myself, as well as by the experiences of people I talk to, which is important because I don't want to end up only teaching uh, in a way that suits neurodivergent people who are like me. But it's something that I don't think I've actually sat down and thought, right, okay, well, what are the elements of that that impact my teaching? And I think part of the reason for that is that for me, teaching is not a distinct thing. Like when I am teaching, to me, it's just like another way of interacting with people. It is not necessarily even a different way of interacting with people. Um, of course, there are certain goals that you have and there might be different priorities, but I don't think that that I've ever thought of it as like a, ah, it's a distinct thing. And so how will I use my neurodivergence when I teach? Having said that, I do think it impacts it a lot. So we've talked before about, you know, whether you teach based on how you like to learn or whether you teach on how you were taught. And I think that that's a really fascinating idea, uh, a question, because I think it really depends on the person. And I think it's probably a bit of both. Something that I talk about, which I actually learned from my student Rhoda, uh, is the idea of the implied student, which is talked about in a paper by Ulrikson, I think 2008. And it's the idea that when we're designing our teaching, and this is in the context of higher education, um, the work that I'm doing, but of course it can apply to other things too. Uh, we are thinking about how our students are going to respond. But of course that's based on our assumptions and intuitions about what a student is like and how it is that they're going to react. And of course that is based on who we are as a learner and who we see as learners and who we see validated as learners. And so we end up without meaning to sort of designing this teaching environment that privileges a certain type of learner sometimes without realizing it. And I think that's quite a mind blowing concept for individuals sometimes to think about. It's like, oh my God, without even realizing it, I'm having this different impact on people. Um, but I suppose that's maybe one example of how my neurodiversity uh, impacts my teaching and that I might go off on a tangent at times, uh, like I sort of just did there and then get a bit lost. But I think to me, something about neurodivergence and also a person that has had lots of therapy, which I am, 
is thinking about what my needs are and actually thinking about that and in what situations what I can do to have those needs met and the awareness that actually sometimes my needs might not be the same as someone else's or just because just because something is always done this way doesn't mean that's the way that works for me and I think as a neurodivergent person you can often grow up being really confused about why it is that people seem to be experiencing things differently but they must be feeling these things the same way you do right because surely we all experience things the same way we don't even think about that we just wonder why it is that we're reacting in this way that seems to annoy everyone um and so I think that that experience makes me at least less inclined to just teach the way that I was taught or teach the way that um is, is considered I I want to say normal with air quotes because I'm very used to being in situations where what is normal is not in fact what works for me so I think I probably do mostly teach the way that I would like to learn but I try quite hard not to only teach the way that I would like to learn and there's a lot of reasons why that is difficult but I've already given quite a long answer to that question so I'll stop there <laughs> that's an excellent answer actually so that yeah that gives another perspective not to try to be uh, to teach exactly always the way we learn so we can also I guess learn at the same time different ways of doing things yeah that's quite quite interesting and what's your 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 motivation you know what drives you to be a teacher in and why that field especially in the Oh, well, I really like connecting with people. So I really like authentic connection or what feels like authentic connection to me. So for me, that's what gives me the warm, fuzzy feelings and the feelings of success is feeling like I'm having meaningful interactions with people. Um, the reason that I'm in the field that I'm in now, which is essentially pedagogy in higher education and particularly inclusive pedagogy is because essentially I struggled uh, in my undergraduate degree for a number of reasons. And I have also a lot of lived experience of, you know, disability and neurodiversity and mental health stuff. And I really love finding patterns and figuring out ways to use those patterns, which is probably another neurodivergent thing. But, but for me, trying to make higher education, a place where people don't have some of the experiences that I've had and that people I know and love have had is, is really what drives me. And a part of it is the fascination of figuring out what's going on uh, in my own brain. And part of it's about feeling connected to people by learning about how they experience things and ways in which that might be similar. And it's partly about then being able to impact people in a way that is both rewarding for me as, a, as an interpersonal reaction, but also hopefully has really big impacts on them and their students. Yeah, well, you must be a very good teacher. <laughs> Just, you know, not, not all teachers. I mean, I've met wonderful teachers. I can't say that, you know, teachers are bad. That's really not what I'm implying here. But, you know, you have different levels or different um, qualities of teaching. And for, from my own experience, teachers who really love what they are doing, it's really a vocation, 
the teaching is quite different. There's a really depth into it. There's a, a, we can feel as a student the desire from the teacher. And I think that's, um, that's a gift because when we receive from the student perspective, so mine, when we receive um, or we are in that relationship with the, uh, the teacher, the passion from the teacher comes to us. And even if the subject is not our favorite subject, it's more approachable because the teacher makes it or shows it under a positive light. Um, and I think the, when, you know, I've heard or I've read many times the line, uh, the teacher is king, which initially really triggered me from you know, every possible way. But then I understood something else that the, the king maybe is the wrong word, but the center of that relationship that the kid look up or the student looks up that's where that the meaning of the king uh, you know comes or blossom it, i think that's a really positive interpretation of it i think there's a lot of different ways um and i'm i'm lucky in that i get to read a lot of assignments where students talk about these sorts of things and how they impact their teaching i'm not lucky in that i have to give those things marks i hate it i just can't stand having to assign a mark to something um probably another neurodivergent thing because um, I'm extremely empathetic and also experienced rejection pretty strongly myself. And so I'm very wary of doing anything that might hurt others in that way. Um, but I've students talk about um, power distance quite a lot, which is really nice. Uh, they talk about the idea that they're trying to reduce the power distance. So that would mean that rather than the idea that, you know, there's the important teacher who's very important and has all the power and all the knowledge. And then there's the tiny little students who must always obey. Um, some people think that having that distance is important. I am not one of those people. I think that it is bad in a number of ways. Um, and I think some people think that a power distance like that is respect, and I personally think that's the opposite of respect. It's certainly not a mutual respect, is it? It's one, one, di like one directional respect. But yes, I think what you're talking about is, is that sort of change from the idea of the teacher as the person that bestows things in this transmissive way to a student to the person that is trying to facilitate knowledge in the student and there's a lot of different teaching models that look into this and i'm not saying that all situations where you're just sort of talking about things delivering content to a student is one with a power distance i think you can do that without without that but what i am saying is that thinking about the experience of your students or trying to at least is for me a really important step but terrifying for a lot of people yeah, there's a, a power struggle always. I wondered sometimes if it's not a confidence issue. It's, I don't think it comes from confidence. I think it comes from lack of confidence and it can come from arrogance. So imagine if you only feel confident in a very specific situation, a situation that you can control. Teaching in a traditional way can be like that because if it's just what you say, you can learn what you say. If you're good at that, you can control every component of it and you can shut down anyone that threatens that. And you might be really confident like that and it's going to have a probably not a very positive impact on people but going into a situation where you're not in control you don't know what's going to happen and you can't plan fully for it is much scarier especially when you are 
potentially quite perfectionist, struggle with anxiety, imposter syndrome, have this idea that to be valuable as a person or as an employee, which are of course different things, um, the latter being less important, you have to meet certain standards. If you feel like that, then no wonder you don't want to do anything that might let yourself slip because you feel like all of your worth goes as soon as you're not perfect. I mean, I can see why people do that, but I do think it's a bristle fragility rather than a strength. I have a few teachers in my family, believe it or not, but um, I came to realize uh, from Scotland, you know, since I'm here, I came to realize that there is another way um, to teach and another way of being a teacher that I was not accustomed to coming from Europe and uh, even the States to a lesser degree. It's interesting thinking about it really um, and just thinking about what we prioritize when it comes to designing our teaching and what it is that we look for in our students. I think the problem is really that you know my area is inclusive practice and arguably higher education is inherently systemically not inclusive for a number of reasons. So it can be a challenge to try and make those changes, especially because, you know, you talk about rigidity and flexibility, which I find interesting because obviously those are both things that sometimes uh, autistic people in particular are criticized for not being able to do. When in fact, sometimes it seems to be used instead to mean, well, they won't do it the way I want them to do it. Um, whereas I often find that it's, it's existing systems which tend to more closely replicate, well, things put in place by, neurotypical people that are often very rigid and don't allow space for anyone that doesn't fit in that model. So I think the most important thing for me really is just that idea that all learners are valid. And I'm not saying it isn't a struggle. Sometimes, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. I talk about different student behavior and how using behavior as a marker for student intention or respect or engagement is a, a problem but there are still things that I as a lecturer find really difficult to be okay with it's not like I woke up like when I was born and was super inclusive I have done a lot of learning uh I've had a lot of problematic assumptions uh in the past but the thing that I'm always trying to get across to lecturers is essentially not to not to assume the worst and maybe that is part of me being neurodivergent and how that impacts my teaching it's maybe a bit selfish as well, because I find myself fighting for students to be allowed to do things that I also feel it's would, would, would be beneficial to me. And so it's somehow easier to fight for other people sometimes. So it, it's funny that in a way that arguing for them, I'm also arguing for the things that are important to me a lot of the time, even if those are things that I find it much harder to stand up for myself about. Um, so, I do think that not everyone personally likes the way that I teach. You know, these things come through on teaching evaluations, which are always difficult to read. But overwhelmingly, when I do talk about inclusion, people talk about it feeling like a, a safe space to discuss things in a non-judgmental way. And I think that is part of prioritizing a genuine interaction. And I also think that my own sensitivity to my own massive emotions and sensitivity to rejection means that I am particularly sensitive. To, well, I try to be particularly sensitive to that as a teacher. But the problem with all of this is that it has 
a lot of different inputs uh, for students and for me. I think marketing takes me a lot longer than it takes a lot of people because I care too much maybe about the impact it's going to have. And when I talk to people about it, they're always really supportive and they say, but your marketing is always fine. And, you know, it's always moderated and, you know, your marks are always make sense and things like that. But the amount of emotional energy that I put into making sure that I'm not hurting someone. Well, I try um, or that I'm being as clear as possible, because those are two things that I would need as an autistic person and um, as an ADHD person, as an anxious person, etc. It does come up quite a lot in conversations these days that we talk we talk in general a lot about how to support neurodivergent students, but we don't talk a lot about how to support neurodivergent or otherwise marginalized staff. And generally, the rule is students are the priority, staff are not. And I actually don't think that that's that helpful a way of putting it. I think that as staff, we have a responsibility to try and do things that um, is supportive to students. But I don't think that that means that that should always come at the expense of our own needs. I don't mean we should be like, well, I just don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. It's obviously not where I'm coming from. But neurodivergent people talk about, um, you know, we can give students deadlines, uh, extensions for reasonable adjustments. Great. Where are our reasonable adjustments for the fact that it takes us longer? Now, I'm not saying that that's simple because, of course, there's a reason that student feedback needs to be back in a certain amount of time. I'm not saying that it's a simple, easy to fix issue. But what I'm saying is, not only does often in institutions generally not my specific one does the party line differ from what actually happens but also we do things with our staff that we wouldn't dream of doing with our students i think sometimes is it because the staff aren't paying customers you can yeah. say i mean i guess that does give you a different type of power being a staff member um i'm not saying that we have less power than students that's not true in the slightest but it's it is always a constant negotiation of which parts of myself I feel safe being authentic about and how much I really want to experience potential repercussions for people that would prefer it wasn't that way and I'm not actually speaking about anyone specific or anything related to my specific department or institution there that's just how it is being a working person like in the working world as a neurodivergent person for me and it's because of what I suppose we've spoken about before about rigidity flexibility and I know a lot about not enough but I know a lot about um, inclusion and neurodiversity paradigms and the idea that we should be inclusive to people doing things their way but that doesn't make it any easier if you come up against someone that says, no, I don't see why you need it that way. Bye. What else do you think that we should focus on to help staff, neurodivergent staff? I don't know, because I don't know what to ask for myself, honestly, having these conversations. Because the problem is that a lot of the things that I as a neurodivergent person would need as an adjustment are things that people should really be doing anyway. Like being clear with communication. Oh. I think the building work next to me might be about to start. Okay. Um, like being clear with communication or not putting things on people at the last minute or being aware that for some neurodivergent people engaging with authority is particularly difficult and so it's important to take extra care um, not to be overly harsh I guess. Um, so the issue is either things are well that's how everyone's meant to be anyway so it's 
it feels kind of confusing asking for that as an adjustment or it's like oh well that's not within the remit of the job or like that's not it's always waiting for somebody to be I'm not again I'm not speaking about my specific uh situation but there is always that kind of okay well at what point is someone going to say well that's not reasonable and maybe if you've said that you have this issue you can't do the job like you have to express you have to make sure that you express that you have a need enough that people believe it but not so much that they think that it's too much of a need for them to meet like it's it's horrifying so I think it's actually obviously the biggest thing is systemic and the idea that there are multiple uh ways of going about things that are completely valid but I hear that what you're asking for is about an individual thing and I find it difficult because I I think that if if we are all able to talk about this then maybe it would help us be able to share things that have worked I don't know I think this is partly why I argue for more holistic inclusive approaches that don't necessarily rely on reasonable adjustments because something we haven't talked about today is the idea that it can be very difficult to get a diagnosis for some neurodivergent conditions especially if you don't present in a certain way um, that is typically expressed by say young white boys and so therefore you already disadvantage a lot of people that don't have a diagnosis or don't even know that they might meet the criteria because they just know that everything's a bit difficult so generally I just think a bit more respect and a bit more believing people would go a long way but from the perspective of the individual thinking about what could help them I don't actually know. Do you think that a pastoral care kind of but for staff you know within HR would be like a first step an internal group that advocate for the staff agreed 100 percent. it's the word advocate that you use there which i think is really important because students whatever flaws there are with the kind of prevailing disability services models that we tend to use um there are some issues with them at least students have an advisor an advocate who can help them with this staff don't and i, I completely agree that that would be a first step. I mean, it being located within HR is always a challenge because, you know, HR's job sometimes feels like it's in, in all institutions is to protect the institution, not the individuals. And um, in which case that might not go, it's just the priorities might make things a bit of a mess at times. But yes, I completely think that something that would make a huge, huge difference would be uh, people employed whose job it is to work with an advocate for disabled, neurodivergent, otherwise marginalized staff to help them figure out what would support them and also to help facilitate next steps if those things are refused. You know, if, if somebody says, for example, well, they can't do that for whatever reason, um, there's both a legal and a moral side to that. So from a legal perspective, it's like, okay, well, you don't have to do it if you don't think it's reasonable. Is it reasonable or do you just not really feel like it? And as this staff member, what are you supposed to do with that? Like that kind of conflict when you're already being told that your needs aren't important. How on earth are any of us meant to deal with that? Especially when some of us have particular difficulties speaking to authority, standing up to authority and have potentially experienced being dismissed for our needs for decades. Honestly, I don't know what they think is going to happen, but it's 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 not safe to in most situations for someone to speak up about that. So in that situation, there needs to be something in place for if um, if the em employer, whatever, 
isn't receptive. I think that would probably make a big difference, actually. And I think that it would make potentially universities more aware of the issue, which is probably pretty buried right now and hidden. Yeah, that's that's, you know, when I was thinking about that uh, aspect, uh, that perspective from the teacher, I was thinking um, that there was nothing for for you guys, you know, especially it's very emotional. That's the way we are. So right there, our being is in question. And so it's sometimes difficult to, to have a, like a professional discussion when it touches us so closely. So the idea of having an intermediary, so someone who can advocate um, for us or, you know, for a neurodivergent teacher would be like the middle ground, the person who can have enough distance but yet enough understanding you know one foot in one foot out and could really negotiate that for the staff and for the institution the employer the university whatever it is but really so both parts are recognized heard and blended somehow I, you know, I'm neurodivergent and I don't believe that I'm better than a neurotypical person um, in any ways. I feel not understood most of the time, but I'm sure that other, neuro, I mean, neurotypical people also feel not understood at times. The way we feel misunderstood may be a bit different or the context may be different, but I think that sometimes it's good to have somebody who understands both sides and the discussion can be fluid and positive because when emotions are involved, it's sometimes it's a bit hard. I mean- Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, no, I interrupted you, please don't apologize. Um, yes, of course, I completely agree with you. The other thing that I think makes this really hard is that often the rules aren't really very clear. Um, even if you can find them, they're not really that clear about what's meant to happen. There, Sometimes there's a reason they're written that way, but you as the employee don't know that or the teacher don't know that. Um, so the best case scenario is that you actually can see the policy itself and read it. The worst is that someone else just tells you what the rules are and, you know, but, but sometimes that's told without any nuance and something is extrapolated and applied in a way that loses all of the original meaning, but somehow manages to make everyone have a worse situation. So, you know, a lot of neurodivergent people need clear rules. And sometimes the reason for that, in my opinion, is because our assumptions are often different. We do not make the same assumptions. So we are used to being in situations where our interpretation of what's going on turns out to not be the same as other people. So we need to see it written down or, you know, verbalized or however we, it helps us to see it, um, to be able to understand and then make sure that we can well choose I suppose whether we want to follow that rule or not but it can feel like a lot of guesswork otherwise can't it you know just trying to make sure you avoid uh doing something that it turns out was not the right thing but how are you meant to know that um and I think that that is as you say a universal experience but possibly particularly prevalent for neurodivergent people I think not making things clear is a bit of a cop out in my experience and personal opinion just because if people don't really know what the rule is you know then how are they meant to really follow it but that's not what necessarily the people that enforce the rules will say you know if it's unclear then you can interpret it as the employer to mean whatever you want it to mean but of course the employee doesn't get to do that so it's yeah I mean there are so many different issues surrounding this stuff and I feel like if I as a person who works in this area personally just you know 
have been on a big journey myself still would find it difficult to speak up, up about some of these things it suggests that there's a lot of work in society that's needed yeah, I think there's a lot, um, a lot to be done. I lived in different countries, so I can contrast the different experiences. Um, in Europe, for example, that's really a subject that is non-existing. You know, neurodiversity, um, autism, ADHD, it's all kind of taboo. It's coming now. In Spain, it is actually. In France or Belgium, it's just like, what, what are you talking about, you know? But uh, in the UK or in Scotland, I'm going to say, um, there's a lot of discussion. It is part of the discussion. Um, but I still feel that there's a lot of discussion. Just so it has a dimension. But the execution or, you know, the second leg of those discussion is still very weak. Um, I always, you know, it's like a good movie. You read, you know, the new... Um, the new bill, the new document that has been produced by the government, you're like, oh yes, the wording has changed. The narrative is, is a lot more positive now. Uh, we are going in the right direction, but then, then that's it. It stays there or it's like defined, well, we're gonna follow this. But my question is that what this means, you know, we're gonna accept difference. Okay, what does that mean in the reality of the classroom every day? It's just, you know, there's lack of gap in between. Yeah, and I do wonder, like, I don't know, so this is a question I pose uh, to the world, but I wonder if as neurodivergent people, we are more likely to not also fill the meaning and be like, okay, so then what? Like, um, you said this and you said that, but what does that mean in practice? What does that mean? And I think often it can come across when we ask as being challenging or difficult or uh, uh, like, trying to say that we disagree whereas often we're like no no I just want to understand what it is and then I can decide whether I agree or not um it's just not assuming or trying not I suppose that certain things always mean certain other things so and I think that often people maybe just don't necessarily see that gap like people want to be inclusive I honestly genuinely believe that um there's a lot of people in higher education uh at what like even at the senior levels that really really genuinely want to make things inclusive but i do not believe that most of those people really have a felt sense of what that means i don't think they really know they know that they want to be inclusive and they they connect that to whatever it is that they connect that to and i'm not saying this is true of all people um and i'm not talking about my institution in particular um i'm just saying people inclusivity sounds pretty important it sounds pretty good but i think sometimes people find it hard to connect people's lived experience of every day with the idea that we need to be inclusive because there's so much lack of inclusivity that to actually accept that the world is that problematic is a lot to hold in your brain and I am sure I don't know the half of what it's like for a lot of people um I have a lot of privilege in a lot of different ways but if people in senior positions sort of find it difficult to connect that to the policies that they make to see the impact on real people then that's when you end up in these sorts of situations yeah I agree we are a few years ahead because we've been feeling this way for so many years and people watch us tackling the subject now to not correct it but to to bring it to another to shape it more positively the understanding is more is newer they haven't had to live with 
the other side of the understanding. They were not the recipient of that misunderstanding for those years. So I think there's a huge difference when the person has lived uh, through it. They And it transpires in what is said, in what is done, in what is written. I see it every day. I'm all about lived experience. This is my research. I can touch it almost. How different the words, the choice of words, the way it is presented. It, it's spectacular. It is. I completely agree with you. It's like a felt sense, isn't it? You just get this vibe like, wow. Um, you know, it's not to say that I think there's a well, okay. So I know that there's a lot of concern that people have about saying the wrong thing at the moment. And I'm as a trans guy, I hear that a lot in relation to debates about trans issues, but in relation to all of this stuff, it comes up. We don't want to say something that's going to upset someone. We really don't. What I find annoying about it is that people often frame it as, oh, well, they don't want to say something that's going to be politically incorrect or that's going to, oh, someone's going to get offended, um, which really speaks more to them being concerned about someone giving them feedback about more than they are about their words having an impact on someone else. So that's one side of it. But I'm, I think that's a minor, minority of people. I think most people do have good intentions. But I think where I was going with that is that from my perspective, it's great if people try, even if they don't have the lived experience, right? But that barrier is often for some people, some people just don't want to believe it. Some people refuse to believe the lived experience of others. And you do see this in the trans debate as well. You see these certain people who will re remain nameless, uh, like coming up with these theories. If only we could imagine the experience of trans people. Well, since there aren't any to talk to or about, uh, well, no, there are about sarcasm there anyway, I'll come up with this theory. But you'd think that maybe evidence from actually speaking to people experiencing that thing could, could help um, maybe help you realize that that theory isn't, isn't quite right. Um, I've got sidetracked. The point is, I, I personally don't mind if people, you know, get wording wrong or something in relation to a thing, but I do mind if they just refuse to consider that that group's own experiences are valid and censor their own feelings about that group existing over um, people telling you how it is. Like if someone with lived experience says, okay, well, I'm not speaking for all, say, autistic people, but this is how I experience it. Is there really a harm in believing them? Yeah, it might mean that you need to reconfigure some things in your brain to, to make sense of what that means in relation to your behavior and how you look at the world. But surely that's nicer and more empathetic than just being like, nope, don't believe it, bye. I think that's not even, I mean, to me, there's not even a question of believing or not. I know. It's just an experience is what it is. It is an experience. Whether you believe it's true or not, doesn't matter. It's still felt. It is still experienced by the person. Right. But it's about whether people see that experience as valid. And I think that's the point. And because, because of our, maybe the academic work that we do, and for me, the amount of therapy I've been in, as I said, um, I can think about things that way and I can think, you know, this is an experience that doesn't mean it's universally true. You know, this one person having this experience doesn't invalidate this person having this experience. Those things can all exist at the same time. Um, but what's really important is um, if the person says that that's what they're experiencing and that because of that, they need that, then saying they don't really need it, for example, is really missing the entire point. But I think for some people, it's more like life is less nuanced, maybe, and accepting that this person's experience is what it is to them might mean an entire rejigging of their of their worldview which may be necessary or um 
it might, I don't know, I think for some people it's hard to accept the idea that two conflicting things can be true at the same time. Like I as a person who is neurodivergent might experience things one way and you might experience it the other way. And those ways might directly conflict with each other. Like it might be a situation where you and I have completely different needs and therefore with a meeting, there's no way that we can make it perfect for both of us. That doesn't mean one of our needs has to like be the most important needs and the other ones don't matter. It just means, okay, there's conflicting things going on here. Let's do what we can. Absolutely. It's just about, you know, accepting the other, whoever that may be, and the experience of the other for what it is. It's just, and everything is valid as long as um, you lived it and you believe in it. I, I really truly believe in this, that, you know, it is what it is and it's not my place to judge uh, or to have, um, you know, bring or put a value on it. It's just to listen and and actually, it's kind of a gift, you know, when somebody share, shares an experience, their own experience. I think it is a trust, you know, they trust you enough to share that experience with you. And I think it has to be seen as a gift and not something to be doubt, doubted about. Anyway, I see the time. It's, um, we could talk for hours. Quickly. We could, we could. There's so much to say. There's so much to unpack from this, uh, this talk. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Bye, Elliot. Thanks for listening to Just To Be Fair. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into what inclusivity means for neurodivergent students, but also for neurodivergent teachers. If you want to learn more about Dr. Spy, you can contact him on Twitter at Elliot Spy. Let me know if you'd like me to discuss any particular topics related to neurodivergence. That's all for this episode. Until next time.